Welcome to Present Value. Hello, Present Value listeners. I'm Jordan Hunt, a first-year MBA student at Johnson and the president of the Consulting Club. I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Chris Bordoni. In their conversation, Chris and host Greg Wool discuss resilience, what resilience is, why it's important, and how to build it. In the interview, Chris discusses his background as an All-American athlete, his surviving cancer at age 30, and his current work coaching individuals and groups to find actionable steps towards transformational change. I hope you enjoy. As always, please subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Greg Wool. Chris Bordoni has lived several lives, athlete, student, consultant, father, executive coach, and podcaster. With a bachelor's degree from Cornell University and an MBA from the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, he has advised top executives as a consultant with Deloitte and Boston Consulting Group and government officials in Illinois while working with the Civic Consulting Alliance in Chicago. The work Chris is doing now centers on resilience, helping those who are looking to make transformational change unlock their potential, in part by bolstering their ability to withstand and grow from the shocks that life throws our way. As you will hear, Chris has experienced his share of adversity and is now committed to helping others along their own journeys. This past fall, Chris spoke to aspiring consultants at the Johnson Graduate School of Management, helping to prepare them for the rigors of recruiting and the realities of life in professional services. He works with individuals through executive coaching, with groups through workshops and speaking engagements, and with the public through his writings and his podcast, 100 Inspiring Voices, all of which you can find at his website, chrisbordoni.com. Chris Bordoni, thank you for joining us on Present Value. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me. That was quite an intro. I, I really appreciate that. And that was, that was very generous, but thanks so much. <laughs> I've noticed on, on your podcast, you have a habit of letting guests introduce themselves. Um, what's your sort of elevator pitch when somebody asks you what you do? Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. I've actually, I've actually started thinking about moving away from it because it's as a guest, it's really difficult sometimes to define what it is that you do, right? Um, so, But I'll, I'll give you mine. So everything that I do is focused around resilience, reinvention and personal growth. So it's really about helping people to figure out um, how do I show up in, in life in a way that's um, where I'm more resilient? How do, I, how do I transform parts of my life that I'm looking to change? And how do I keep growing over time? Um, and so that, practically speaking, looks like the things that you talked about, right? I spend a lot of time teaching MBA students at American University. Um, I have a coaching business. I do trainings, workshops, um, and then I have my own podcast. And so it's, it's really fun to come at it from a lot of different angles. But I think that common thread throughout is resilience. It's that reinvention piece. And then it's just how do I grow and change over time? That term resilience, I think it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, I've even heard it defined in a couple different ways on your podcast. What definition do you use when you're speaking of resilience? Yeah, it's funny. I I, um, I was just doing a workshop last week, and, and one of the pages is actually just several different definitions. And I think there were many definitions before 2020, and I think in the last year, um, people are talking about it in many different ways, and I think it's a word that's that's on the border of losing meaning, right, as tends to happen from time to time. I'm not super dogmatic about which way I think about it. Um, I think probably the most common definition is it's the ability to bounce back from something. Um, 
I think that's okay. I think there's some things I like about that. Um, some people talk about it as the ability to carry out your mission, to carry forward your purpose when faced with changed circumstances, right? So the world gets difficult, things change, and you're still able to do the things that you care about. I like that definition in some ways. Um, I think probably my favorite, though, is resilience is the ability to transform and grow from adversity. So something happens, and that's a catalyst for you to grow and change. It, it has an element of that post-traumatic growth flavor to it. Um, but, you know, I think really resilience can be sort of whatever you want or need it to be in a moment. Um, I, I think there's there's so much richness to it, and there's so many places that we could take it that um, I think it's helpful just to think about it as the ability to uh, take something that's challenging in your life and make something good out of it. I, I like that because it touches on the need to be ready for something that is otherwise unpredictable. Uh, in one of the episodes on 100 Inspiring Voices, uh, Philip Zimbardo defined resilience as the opposite of giving up. And I thought that was interesting, but it also goes right to the moment when resilience is needed. And it seems like your focus is more on what happens before that moment, how you ready yourself for a moment when you have two options, either give up or persevere. I think that's right. And I think for, for anyone who's trained as an athlete or someone who's prepared for something professionally, I think oftentimes there's a ton of preparation and growth that goes into getting to that big moment, right? The big presentation, the, the sporting competition, whatever it is. I think the same thing is true in life, right? So I think there's a period of time when we can invest in things like resilience, when it's relatively smooth sailing and you have the opportunity um, to invest in things like your your relationships, your faith and spirituality, your mental habits, whatever it is, right? When a crisis strikes, whether it's big or small, that's oftentimes the hardest time to, to build your resilience, right? That's when your resilience is tested. That's when if you're building a, a resilience bank account, you're, you know, you're drawing down that account in that moment, right? You're relying on what you have. Usually, and I think oftentimes when it's a really big crisis, you just don't have the headspace or the ability to go and start learning. It'd be like if you, you know, if you were, had a heart attack and in the hospital, you said, you know, I'm going to start eating lots of vegetables. Um, it's a good idea and it's a, it's the right idea, but it's probably not going to help you much in that moment. But if you'd been doing it for years before, you know, it might have made the difference. And obviously heart disease is, is more complicated than that, but I think everyone gets the idea, right? Um, and so I think there's there's these different, in general, these different periods of time where you can be investing in things when it's relatively smooth sailing in the crisis Success often just looks like surviving. It's just getting from point A to point B, and it's usually or oftentimes can be really ugly. It's not the best that we we can have or, or can be, um, but that's okay. The bar changes, I think, in those moments. And what I would add, though, is I think in the aftermath of something happening, something that's destabilizing in your life, there is a tremendous opportunity for growth, right? I don't think that we tend to prioritize that, whether at work or in our personal lives, because it's painful to think about those things. But the reality is, is that you can go into those spaces and you can reflect on what happened, right? Was my preparation good? What happened in that moment? What did I do really well? Who lifted me up? You can think about all those things and we can grow and change as people in the aftermath. And I think the data would say that people do grow in general from, from being faced with adversity, which I think is a really uplifting uh, message. But you know, I think sometimes it's helpful to think about what phase are you in, and given the phase that you're in, what's the priority, right? Are you taking, are you making investments, or are you just trying to survive? And there's no judgment in that, right? We're all at a different place um, in in each moment. Yeah, and you know, I, I do want to deep dive on the approach that you use when you're working with clients, but I also want to get for our listeners a broader sense of sort of where you come from and what your journey has been, and. It's funny, in an outside project, I'm working with high school-age students on long-term goal setting and trying to think of where they want to be in you know, 10 or 15 years from where they are. So 
if we were talking instead to a 15-year-old Chris Bordoni and we asked him, what are you going to do when you grow up? What answer would we have gotten? Yeah, I think that that kid was as confused as most other kids at, at that age. I think I was still figuring it out. And I think I am still figuring it out like many people are, right? Um, I, I think at that time, I would, if you knew me, you would say that I was very competitive, right? So I was involved in sports. I was a competitive swimmer. Um, I was a pretty, I was a good student at the time. Um, but I would say that there was also some things like I was, you know, I wasn't the kindest person at that time. I was a little bit judgmental. I was a lot of things that I would say I've grown out of. And some of that's growing up. And some of it's also the experiences that that I've gone through. Um, I think for the people who've, who've seen that full progression, I would say that there's parts of my life that really don't look a lot like they did then. And even for me, there's so much about my life that I could never have predicted. And so, um, I don't know, I didn't have great visibility into what the future held then. Uh, I'm not sure that I do now either, but I, I know that it certainly a lot has changed in the last 20 years. Absolutely. So, you know, at the age of 15, you were a competitive swimmer and that's, that's probably putting it lightly, right? Um, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what happened? Why? Why? Um, why is that not still what <laughs> you know? How you're defined in terms of uh, your your primary mode of interacting with the world? Yeah. So um, I was a I was a good swimmer. Um, I had some success with that. I was a state champion swimmer. I was an all America swimmer. Um, and and I and I liked it. And I was competing. And I was continuing to get better. And all those things were going really well. Um, when I was seventeen. I had a, a two serious shoulder injuries. Um, and so I basically blew up both my shoulders. I ended up spending, had two surgeries, spent the next year or so rehabbing and ultimately couldn't get back in the pool. Um, as much as I tried and I, I was doing a lot of rehab, meeting with all sorts of different people, um, really trying to, to make a go of it because I'd gone to college thinking that I was going to swim and being really excited about it. Um, and ultimately I wasn't able to. And so my swimming career sort of ended overnight. And it took a little while for me to realize it and to actually give up the dream of, of being able to swim. But it effectively was done by the time I was 17. Um, and, and so I think one of the things that that forced me to do was it forced me to, to think about, well, what next? If you're not a student athlete, if you're not a swimmer, if that's not your social outlet, what are you going to do? And so I ended up transferring. So I transferred to Cornell, got more serious about my studies, got involved in some other things. And, you know, I think this is one of the themes that, that we can talk about, but that experience was frustrating, was challenging, and I miss swimming. And, you know, when, I, when I'm around a pool or I watch the Olympics and things like that, like it really pulls on, on sort of my heartstrings. And, and in fact, I, I often think about making a comeback and what would that look like. Um, but, you know, for me, that ended up being a catalyst toward a lot of things that have been really positive in my life, um, going to Cornell being one of them. Um, but, you know, those positives were born out of some really tough times, some things that I really struggled with. And I think was prepared in some ways as a 17, 18 year old to go through, but in other ways was a young person who was figuring out a lot of stuff at the time. And, and that was hard to, to be going through that during that period. So it's also around that time you started consulting as um, maybe one of your sort of primary definitions. Uh, how did that journey start and how has that played into the person that you are now? Yeah. So my story is maybe one that many people can relate to. I actually thought that I wanted to go to law school. So my father's a lawyer, my brother's a lawyer. Um, and, and so I, th I thought that I wanted to go to law school when I graduated from Cornell. Um, and I I just, I had my applications ready. I was ready to press submit and I just couldn't get there. Like I wasn't, you know, I was having a hard time with the LSAT. I wasn't that excited about, I had some just some questions about whether it was the right fit. And so I, I basically panicked at the last minute and I pulled the plug and I didn't submit any of those applications. I was really fortunate um, that I was able to basically 
sneak into an opportunity in consulting through a bunch of circumstance. There was a slot that happened to open up in, in the office that I was interested in, and I was someone was kind enough to give me an opportunity to interview, and, and everything sort of played out from there. But I had missed all the on-campus recruiting which is not the way you want to do this. Um, and so I was I was lucky. I didn't really know a lot about what consulting was, but I knew a couple people who had done it who had said it's a great place to learn. It's a really fun, sort of interesting way uh, to spend your time if you're just starting out and want to see a lot of different things. And so I was lucky to, to arrive at Deloitte, um, and I did learn a ton. It was a, a really fantastic experience. I worked with some really smart people and got to work on some really interesting things. And I think what I realized is that I liked that part of it. I liked the fact that I... Um, could see a lot of different things. I didn't have to become an expert on one specific thing. I liked being challenged. I liked working with people who are smart and motivated. There's so much about consulting that, that resonated with me. It's also a hard job, right? There's some things about it that, that I think many people don't love. Um, but but I, you know, that set me down the path of being a consultant for the next 10 or 12 years. And so obviously there was quite a bit about it that resonated with me. And along the way, you went to one of the best business schools in the world and then ended up at one of the most prestigious consulting firms in the world. And you never needed to encounter adversity or develop resilience again, right? <laughs> yeah, smooth sailing. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the I guess the the second part of the Deloitte story was that I was doing really well. I was enjoying it. Things were, were, going, were going well. Um, and then I had a really serious back injury unexpectedly. Um, and so I ended up being laid up for several months you know, it was at a point where I was basically laying on a couch, could barely walk, certainly couldn't carry anything, and definitely couldn't do the job where you're, you know, you're traveling, you're working 60 plus hours a week, like that, that stuff was out of the picture. Um, so I rehabbed really hard and ultimately couldn't do the job and was forced to resign. And so I went back to business school. And so again, that adversity led me to something that I think was really good, going to business school, meeting some different people, meeting my wife, a lot of great things came out of going to B school. And so I clawed my way back to health when I was in business school, um, was able to get a job at BCG, which is a fantastic company. Went there, was doing really well, everything was going great, and then my back injury happened again. And so was forced to resign again um, after you know a period of trying to get healthy. And I think at times I was really frustrated. These experiences were challenging. On the other hand, they kept leading to other good things. So when I was at BCG, I had a chance to work on a, a social sector project, working with an organization that was trying to do something very mission-driven. And, you know, this was many years ago, and there was less emphasis around mission orientation, um, social enterprise, things like that. It was a really cool experience, and it was really eye-opening what the skills could, this consulting skill set could do when you applied it to some of the social challenges that are out there. And so when I was leaving BCG, I knew that I wanted to do something in the social sector. And so that's how I ended up in local government out in Chicago doing work. And that was awesome. That was some of the most rewarding work that I ever did. Um, and so, you know, I think there's there's always good that comes out of these setbacks. But I'll tell you that in the moment, they were they were really frustrating. I felt like I was falling behind. Physically, it was, it was daunting. It was challenging. And, you know, I think I was young and, and seemed healthy and was healthy otherwise. And so it was hard to make sense of it. And it was hard that it was something that maybe a lot of folks couldn't relate to or didn't know how to help or didn't know what to do with. Um, but on the other hand, when I look back on it, there's so much good that came out of these moments that I'm, I'm much more thankful for them than not. And you're also a cancer survivor, something that, you know, I think people in, in you know, I'm, I'm turning 33 this month and it's, it's sort of an idea, but it's never something that you think is going to happen at this stage in your life. Can you talk a little about encountering that difficulty and, and how, again, any opportunities that that created or, or what that taught you? Yeah, I mean, so I was 30 when I was diagnosed with cancer um, and 
I had just started my own company. I just got my first client. I had just moved to, to Washington, D.C., so my wife's job, it took us from Chicago to D.C., um, had been married, you know, not too long before. So, like, life was looking really good. And then I found out that I had cancer, and it was, you know, never had been on my mind. Um, but it turns out that testicular cancer is the number one cancer um, among young men, right? It's not common. It's still rare. But there's 8,000 or so cases a year, I think, in the U.S., and I happen to be one of them. Um, and and that was a that was a pretty wild journey. I had caught it late. Um, initially, they thought I'd caught it early. It turned out they'd caught it really late. So I was stage 3B. Um, 3C is the, the the latest. That would be like Lance Armstrong, right? And so I was a step below that, thankfully. Um, but I went through several surgeries and chemotherapy and 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 really, you know, had an interesting go of it. Um, I'm I'm clearly lucky to be sitting here having this conversation with you. Um, and, and I think in the spirit of what we were talking about, it, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. It was one of the worst things I ever went through and I wouldn't want someone else to go through it. But I think for me and, and my own journey, it was, it was a really eye-opening experience. It was a humbling experience. It was one that really forced me to think about what I want to do with my life, what, you know, answer some of the questions that 15 year old me couldn't answer. And with the benefit of 15 more years of experience, I had some more data points to draw upon. And, and I think, you know, now sitting where I am, I'm I'm incredibly thankful for that experience. But, um, you know, I know a lot of other cancer survivors who who didn't make it, and so it's it's one of those things where you know there's always mixed feelings about being on this side of the table. So thinking about that in the context of resilience, you've seen at least your fair share of adversity, if not more, and you've persevered. You're successful. You you have, as you've said, a lot to be grateful for. It sort of raises the question: Have you been able to face that adversity because of an innate resilience? Or have you built some resilience as a result of having faced an excess amount of adversity? I, I guess another way to phrase that is, is resilience something that people are born with or something that they grow or some combination of both? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think that everyone, let me start by saying this, anyone who's listening to this, this right now is already resilient. We all have resilience, right? Sometimes we forget about it. Sometimes we get sped up in a moment. Sometimes life overwhelms us. But we're all incredibly resilient people. And so if you're sitting here, you're breathing, you're listening to this, you are resilient. I believe that's true for, for everyone. I think that's a helpful place to start. I, I do think that there's, you know, there's some quotient of resilience that's genetic, that differs by person. That's certainly true. Um, then there's also a portion that you build, like through your upbringing, right, and the experiences that you have. And I would say for me, there are some things about my childhood that probably were helpful. Um, so growing up in a family where, where there was some other physical limitations, the way that people talked about things, the way that um, people had you know a can-do attitude or weren't willing to be told no when other people might have, have told them that or might have felt that way. There were definitely some things about my upbringing that I think were helpful. But I would also say that the fact that my experience is sort of scaled up, right? So I had shoulder injuries, which were serious to me at the time, but I think compared to the back injuries and then compared to having cancer, like they were relatively minor things. Um, and in fact, I, I had two more shoulder surgeries when I was in uh, business school. And I think having gone through it and having, having had some back injuries and stuff, like it was relatively easier to go through it, know, knowing what I knew at the time. And so I think, I think we build that resilience over time. Um, I think experiences can help us build that. And I think invest in, investments that we make in our own lives can help us to become more resilient. So I'd say there's not one formula, but I think you start with a good amount of it. You already have a good amount of it. And yes, you can continue to build that over time. You can also do things that make you more fragile, that make you less resilient. And so, you know, it's about trying to get that balance right and, and check in with yourself and see, are the things that I'm doing 
helping me? Are they hurting me? Um, or do I need to spend some more time thinking about it because maybe it's not clear? Earlier, you used the term post-traumatic growth, and that relates to a mental model that you share on your website about the predictably unpredictable process that life tends to take in terms of shocks. Can you share this model with our listeners and its implications in making the case for becoming more resilient? Yeah, I mean, so I think I think there's sort of two elements to this. Um, I talked about the first part before, which is that if you think about it, there's sort of a U-shaped graph that we can imagine, right? Where your well-being is the y-axis. In any given moment, you have a certain amount of well-being. And then time is the other axis. And so as time goes by, um, at some point, shocks will happen. They can be big things, they can be little things, but your well-being will dip down, right? And then it will come for many people, will come back up. Um, It could come back up partially, so you might deal with something like post-traumatic stress disorder, and you might have some of your well-being come back. You might bounce back. That's kind of like the traditional definition of resilience. Or you might come actually come out of it with a greater sense of well-being. And that's where post-traumatic growth comes in. The idea that after some one of these shocks, you actually are in a better place. You say that, you know, my relationships are stronger. I have more faith and in, in meaning in my life, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's ways that scientists actually try to quantify these things. Um, and it, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, right? Obviously, life is more complicated. We're not one number in any given moment. Um, but I think it is helpful to think about what that progression looks like over time. I think the other part of the shock story, though, is, is that shocks are a part of life. So if you look at the data, right, there are things that if you don't face it in your lifetime, certainly someone that you care about will. Right, so these would be things like yes, there's the really rare things like global pandemics, um, terrorist attacks, things like that, and like th- those um, actually are pretty rare in terms of their ability to impact you, except for when they do, like what we're all living through right now. But there are things that are much more common, things like getting in a, in a serious car accident, losing your job, um, being diagnosed with cancer or other physical diseases, you know, having a child that has you know special needs, like all sorts of things can happen in life. And that's not to say that these are good or bad things. I think they're just things that happen. But they, they certainly, for most people, are shocks and they have the ability to disrupt your life. And so I think the reality is, is when you look at the data, that's just part of life. It's part of the fabric of life. And in fact, it's not just those huge things but you can look at smaller things that happen too. Things like, you know, I'm on a dating app and and someone decides to swipe in the wrong direction. Um, I'm a student and I fail a test. I don't get the job interview that I want to have. Those are all shocks. Those are all things that can be traumatic. Um, are they are they smaller in terms of the impact? Yeah, for many people they tend to be, but they're also more frequent in terms of how often those things happen, right? And so that's where um, I think there's an opportunity to prepare for those types of shocks, but there's also an opportunity to learn from them. And so I, I think you know. Resilience, adversity, post-traumatic growth, these things are all related because you have the opportunity to prepare, you have the opportunity to get through them, you have the opportunity to grow and make sense of them. And I think as you do that, you get better at going through that process. And that process is just life. That's just the texture that everyone's life has. It's funny, you're talking about sort of tail risk, right? Like very risky but rare events that happen. And you look at, you know, it's I just happened to be listening to an interview with um, Alice Hill this morning, who under President Obama was the senior director for resilience policy. And she was talking about the recent power grid failure in Texas. And that's sort of a, a real world incident of a lack of resilience. And when we're here thinking about infrastructure spending and, you know, not to turn this into a political conversation, but it seems like a very tangible external example of the importance of building resilience in advance so that when things happen in our personal lives, we're, we're able to prepare for those. 
Um, I'll, I'll let you speak to that, but I, I also want to give you an opportunity to share the five factors that you outline on your website that help to drive resilience. And so maybe those two topics can converge. Yeah, I mean, so I, I do want to follow up with what you said, which, and by just adding that resilience is not monolithic, right? So what makes me or made me a resilient or allowed me to, to be resilient enough to get through being sick, for example, helps me maybe to some degree if my child gets sick, but in other ways doesn't prepare me at all, right? Or doesn't prepare me nearly as much as I would like. And so one of the things I realized from interviewing a lot of different people who've been through adversity is, is that resilience can look like a lot of different things. Is there some commonality? Absolutely. And I'll talk about what those factors are. But but when you talk about tail risk and we talk about things that we're not prepared for, we don't think about, resilience has that flavor to it. It's multifaceted. We need to be thinking about resilience in, in many different ways, whether it's being resilient at work, being resilient at home, being resilient physically, mentally, all those different things. It's a little bit more complicated than just saying I am resilient or I'm not resilient, right? It's a never-ending chase for a state that you can't attain, but you certainly can make progress toward it. So I think the second part of that is, is what are the five factors? And so if you look at the research on this, um, if you talk to people who've been through adversity and you start to connect the dots, if you think about my own experiences, there's really five things I think that explain most of what makes someone resilient. And again, we're putting aside the genetic component, we're putting aside someone's past because there's not much you can do about those, right? So let's talk about what can you control or what can you influence. So the first factor is your mental habits. So that's how do you explain the things that happen? How do you make sense of what's going on in, in your world? The second is your uh, your sense of purpose and meaning. So do you get up each day feeling like you have a purpose? You have something that you're working toward. You have something that's motivating you. The third is your, your faith and your sense of hope, right? So for some people, their religion looks like this. For other people, it's just belief in something that's bigger than yourself, being connected, having something that supports you. And you can imagine why that would be really powerful for many people. The fourth um, is going to be your relationships. So your connections, the ability to rely on other people, to feel connected, to be validated, to have people lift you up. And then finally are your resources. And so this could be your physical resources, your health. It could be uh, monetary resources, so your ability to, to get help, to pay for help, things like that. And it's also your mental state. Do you have the excess capacity to deal with something? Or are you running full out in normal times so that when a pandemic happens, it's just too much. You have no spare capacity, right? So you could think about these five different factors. And I think what's really interesting about them, and, and one of the messages that's really important for me as I'm talking about it, is that there is no one-size-fits-all answer here. So not only is resilience multifaceted, but the way in which different people choose to become resilient is totally personal to them. So I, I survey people when I do workshops and I ask them, you know, which of these do you rely on? Of these five factors, rate how important it is to you when you're faced with adversity. And people put each of them in their top two, right? So they rank them differently, everyone does. And so in some groups, something like spirituality might be less important than their mental habits, but in other groups it's flipped. And, and I think that's such an uplifting and hopeful message. There's no one way to become resilient. It's really about what works for you. Um, and you then can go deeper on that and say, what are the types of behaviors, what are the types of practices in my life that would allow me to become more resilient against this specific factor? And so it really is something where you get to be your own chef, so to speak. You get to make your own um, your own plan for how you do this. And I think that's an awesome message because right now it's uh, there tends to be a very dogmatic strain to this conversation. It's like if you want to be more resilient, go do mindfulness. You want to be more resilient, you know, start a gratitude journal. Those are awesome tools. Running is a great thing. Like these things are all fantastic for people, but they also don't work for a lot of people. And so I think the question is, if you're one of those other people or one of those things doesn't work for you, what else can you do? And I, I think for me, the answer is there's hundreds of other things that you can go and do. 
And so it's not a reason to give up. It's a reason to go try something different. One of those factors that I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in double-clicking on is, is that of finding one's life purpose. I, I think that's something that people probably encounter more than once throughout their lifetime, is sure. just trying to figure out what path they're on. What do you recommend for somebody who's struggling to define their purpose in life? Yeah. I'm actually really glad that you brought this up, because I think it's great in some ways that we're talking more about purpose. I do think purpose is important. I do think it is clearly a sense of a source of resilience and also well-being more broadly for people. However, I think there's a lot of people who feel stressed out by the fact that they haven't found their purpose. They haven't found it at 23 years old. They haven't found it at 37 years old. And it's one more thing. Now you feel inadequate because you don't have your purpose. You don't have your big, your calling and you're not living it, right? And I think that is not the effect that we want. I don't think that we want people to feel that way. So the first thing I would say is it's okay, right? It's okay if you haven't found it. Um, that's totally normal. And your purpose also doesn't have to look like other people's purpose, right? So for some people, it's professional. For some people, it's saving the world. That's great. For other people, though, it's it's being a good parent or it's being you know the best bowler on their team or just the nicest person on their bowling team, right? Like It doesn't matter what it is. It's deeply personal, just like the other things that we're talking about. Now, for someone who is trying to, to figure out you know, how do I get a little sharper about this? Um, how do I maybe see if I'm on the right path? Or how do I, I know that what I'm doing isn't working. How do I get maybe pointed in a different direction? I think there's a simple way to think about this. And I think about it as a Venn diagram. And so there's three circles and those circles overlap in the center. And the center to me is not strictly your purpose, but I think it gives you a sense of where your purpose might be or a direction that you can run in. And so circle number one or the first piece of this is what is it that you like to do? What sparks your curiosity? What's interesting to you? What do you lose track of time when you're doing, right? People talk about flow, these types of concepts. What feels really good to you? So there's the what do you like part. There's a second piece, which is what are you good at? And so that doesn't that may be the same thing in some instances. There's other things, though, that we're all good at that maybe we don't really like. Um, and so what is it that you're good at? The third piece, then, is what does the world need? Right, And I think the intersection of those things, what do you like, what are you good at, what does the world need, is a pretty good direction for you to head off in. Right? Is, it, is the answer necessarily there? Is there more than one thing that could exist there? Absolutely. But that's a better place to go looking, I think, than, than some of the other places. And so for people who are having a hard time conceptualizing the Venn diagram, like I'll give you a couple examples. I like working on cars. This is something that I started working on more seriously during COVID. But the world doesn't need any more mechanics, and I'm not particularly good at it, right? So that's probably not where my purpose in life lies. Similarly, I was pretty good at data and analytics when I was a consultant, right? Um, I was pretty good at it. There's huge demand for people who can analyze large data sets, but I didn't really like it. I liked some of it. It felt pretty good. But at some point, I just didn't want to do any more of it, right? And, and sitting in a data set with a million rows of data was kind of stressful for me. So even though two of those things I could check the box, that's not where I want to go and, and work, right? That's not where my purpose is. The work that I'm doing now feels like it checks all three of those boxes. Will it evolve? Has it evolved? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but I think that's sort of a good heuristic for are you headed in the right direction or are you missing something big that's probably part of you finding that purpose? That's actually a really nice transition because I'm imagining there's some listeners who are hearing this conversation and are like, yes, this is what I need to be hearing. More of that, please. And so if one of those people goes to your website and goes to the Resilience 101 tab, what are they going to find there? And how have you structured the information that's available? Yeah. So I've tried to be consistent with this conversation in that I think different people need different things at different times. And I think certain people learn in different ways, right? And so if you're someone who 
really wants to go deep, you want to intellectualize this, you're very left-brained, you're very analytical, um, I created a, an in-depth guide to resilience. And so it goes deep into the theory of it. There's specific examples. You can go much deeper on, on any part of it. And it shows how it all comes together and how do you build a plan, right? How do you build a, a more top-down plan and then go and experiment with it at the end? So if you want to invest you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, I think that's a really good place to start if that sounds like you. If you're someone who either just likes to get going, so you like to test and learn, or you're in, insanely busy right now and you don't have a lot of time to learn about the theory or you don't have a lot of time to integrate something in your life, I'd go to the Resilience Workbook. So the Resilience Workbook is meant to be 10 different practices that cover you know, those five broad factors so you can choose what speaks to you. And they can be done in five or 10 minutes a day. So the idea is pick a practice, do it for five or 10 minutes a day for two or three or four weeks, and then see how that feels. See if it feels like it's something that's worth continuing. It talks in the book or in the workbook about how to um, how to escalate it, how to make it more challenging, or find something else to work on. But I think for someone who just wants to get going or feels a little bit stuck, I think that's a great place to go. For someone who just wants some hope and some inspiration, I think the podcast is an awesome resource to check out. Right, Lots of different stories. Um, people have been through amazing things that, that make my experiences look like nothing. And so it's really cool, I think, to hear from them and other experts. And then finally, um, in the Resilience 101 portion of it, there's um, for people who really want to go deep, there's lots of books, articles, other places where you can really pick um, a specific aspect of it, like resilience in organizations, and you can go deeper if that's of interest. You mentioned that your work has changed or that your focus towards uh, helping others to build resilience has changed. Um, what has that process looked like? What have you learned about who your target client is, for instance, and also what has that taught you about how you can help to affect the the sort of change that you're looking to uh, to manifest? Yeah, I mean, so I think the first part of that is, in some ways, my 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 career totally changed, right? So I'm now working with many individuals, or I'm working with organizations on helping the individuals, um, and that looks and feels really different from what I was doing for the first ten or twelve years of my career. On the other hand, when I look back at what I was doing as a strategy consultant, um, it was really about how do you help organizations grow? How do you help them to transform and change? How do you help them to go through difficult periods of time? How do you help them make big decisions better? And, and really, that's the same thing that I'm doing now. It's just in a slightly different context. So I would say, just in terms of reinvention, because I think it's really interesting, there's things that change and there's things that stay the same. And that core, that those things that stay the same are really powerful. It's really important for people to build on those. And so I think what's what I like and what's working well for me is that there's so much that I can take from my quote unquote past life and bring that into the work, uh, the work that I'm doing now. Thinking about your role as an executive coach, I, I'd love to get your take on that position in somebody's life. How do you define executive coaching and how is it distinct from another role that somebody might play like a mentor or a manager, um, even a therapist or a life coach? What makes an executive coach both definitionally and, and what makes somebody a good executive coach? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think a lot of people, I think, confuse the difference between a consultant and a coach, right? So as a consultant, people were paying me money to come to them with an answer. So that assumed that the question was knowable. The answer There was an answer, it was knowable. And then it assumed that I would go and figure it out or my team would go figure it out and we'd come back with an answer. Coaching is almost the opposite, right? So it's not about coming up with the answer. It's about empowering someone to go and explore and to come up with their own answer, to figure out what, what is the answer, what's the direction, what's the search that they're going to go on in their own life. And so it's about supporting them. It's about helping them understand. It's about um, getting them going on that path or or making that journey a little bit more effective for them. But it 
it, it is not about me coming up with the answer. It's not about me telling you what you should go do. And in fact, if I'm doing that, I'm doing a bad job of, of being a coach for you, right? So I think that's a really, really, really critical distinction. And I think one that um, sometimes we struggle with, like when we're giving people advice in our personal lives, like some people talk about the advice monster, like the desire to just tell someone, you know, what is it that they should go and do in that moment? And, and you really do have to resist the urge to do that. As far as the other sort of related professions, you know, there are, you know, there's there's social workers, there's psychologists, there's so many people who help others, right? They're all helping professions. I think they're all complementary. So I think there's a time and a place for those things. I think, you know, we were talking about resilience and the phases of that. If you're in the midst of a crisis and you're really struggling, ask for help. And that help probably doesn't look like me. That pro- probably looks like a professional um, who's trained to deal with people in those moments. Or if you really struggle with your past and you want to work through some of that, you know, go and get help. Go work with someone who's professionally trained to do that sort of work, right? So I think there's different specializations. There's different ways in which people can help. I would also say that at various points in people's life, a certain type of helper, a certain type of engagement is can be really useful. And then you might find that you got what you needed out of that relationship and you move on and you try something else. I think that's a really positive way of, of thinking about it. So I would say that they're all complementary. Um, they're definitely different. They're not, they're not one and the same. There's a time and a place for different ones. I think as far as what makes someone a good coach, um, I think there's a couple things. So one is being a good listener. So... You really have to be able to to hang in there and truly listen and not be thinking about what are you going to say next, but hearing someone. And not only just hearing what are they saying, but hearing what they're not saying and hearing the question behind the question and all of those things. I think the second piece of it is is being able to ask good questions, open-ended questions, questions that don't presuppose things, but questions that also push someone to go into a space where they have to reflect on something, they have to think on something. That's really hard. Um, that's that's a skill, and, and making the switch from consulting to coaching, you know, you have to be really purposeful. I think about what questions are you asking, how are you asking those questions, because questions to allow someone ex- to explore are different than questions to get the answer that you need to make the presentation for tomorrow. Right? Those things are, can look pretty different. Um, and I would say the third piece of it is is being a, being trustworthy and being able to create a space where your client is able to to do some difficult work. Um, A lot of times the sessions, and again, I think it probably depends on what type of coach you are and what type of work that you're doing, but I think a lot of times you start out having a conversation around performance or around aspirations or whatever, and then it turns into a conversation about someone's values and about the choices that they're making in life. And I think it's helpful to be able to go there. I think there's a lot of value. But if you haven't created a space where someone trusts you and is willing and trusts themselves and is willing to go there and all of that, then it can be really hard to get into that space and it can be hard to actually make any progress. So I, I would say that those are, those are three of the big things. I'm sure there's many more things. But for me, those are the three things that I'm trying to do a good job of every time I'm having a session with someone. On the other hand... I'd love to dive into the idea of what makes a good client. Something that is stressed a lot in MBA recruiting is being able to demonstrate coachability, especially in like a, a, a consulting case interview. And I would imagine that there are behaviors that make somebody more or less coachable or a more or less attractive client for you as a coach. Uh, what are some of those behaviors? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about my own practice. Again, it's different for what people do. I, I think I should, um, I think those will come out in the answer in terms of where I tend to focus more. And I think that was part of your previous question. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to get to it now. But I look for a couple things. So one is motivation, right? Someone who's truly motivated to do the work. What I've found is, is that I can help with a lot of things, but I can't do the work for someone. 
and, and really no one can. And so if there's a spark, can we talk about how to fan the flame, how to make it bigger? Absolutely. But if someone really doesn't want to do the work, isn't ready to do the work, just for whatever reason, and no judgment in that, if they're not ready to do the work and they're not willing to put it in, put in the time and the effort, it's really hard to make any progress. And that doesn't end up being a good use of my time or someone else's time or money. And so that's one of the, the big things that I screen for, is just trying to understand how committed are you really to this? To the point where a, a lot of times you say, you know what, like I'd love to work with you down the road, but this doesn't feel like the right time for you right now. Let's let's circle back when it is a better time. So I think the first piece is around motivation. The second is what is it that someone wants help with? So there are coaches who coach on all sorts of things. Um, and I think that's that's great. There's a time and a place for all those things. For me, what's interesting, what gets me excited is when someone wants to transform part of their life. So they want to change careers. Um, maybe they're approaching retirement and trying to figure out what do I want my latter years of my life to look like. They're someone who's really struggling with the world in which they find themselves and articulating their values and figuring out, you know, what do I want my family to be like, right? How do I want to raise a kid? Those types of things. I find that people who are at those inflection points, who are trying to figure out, they feel like something big needs to change, but can't quite figure it out, can't quite articulate how to get there or what it is. That's when it tends to be most rewarding for me, most interesting. And I think it's because we we teach or we coach in what we know. And if I go back to my prior experiences, I had a lot of those moments in my life where I hit that I hit the wall, right? I hit a roadblock and then had to figure out where do I go from here? How do I reinvent myself? And I went through that enough times that I think people sense that I have something to say there. And, and I like helping people with it because I do have something to say. Now, some people as coaches would say, you don't need to know anything about that. You don't need any subject matter expertise. I have mixed feelings about that. I think that there is value in being able to relate and being able to understand uniquely what someone's going through in a moment. But, you know, those are, I think, the, the really two big things. I would say beyond that, the, the third thing is just someone being willing to explore, right? So you can't intellectualize life experience. Like going and reading, you know, going and reading the, the, the things on my website that I talked about, like, is it a good starting point? I hope so. Can it help some people to take that first step? Yes, I think in many cases th those things do. But it's all predicated on someone going out and figuring out what works for you, right? What do you, what lessons do you need to learn in life? How are you going to get those experiences? And so when I when I'm coaching, it's always with an eye toward what are you going to go do after this meeting? How are you going to make the the unknown known? What data are you going to go and collect, right? And it tends to be because of my background more business oriented, more about testing and learning, right? As we talk about in the business world. And so that's how I want people to work. That's how I think people um, learn. And so for people who like just want to talk about it, but don't actually want to get out there and try different things, aren't willing to, to shake things up in their life, it doesn't tend to be a great fit either. Because again, if, if, if what you were doing was working, um, then there wouldn't be a reason to change. But typically when you get to a point where someone's willing to invest in their coaching, there is something that doesn't feel like it's quite right. And so that change can be a really important part of how you move forward. Thinking about that aspect of motivation, I'm reminded of a phrase that's said often in, in running, which is that the first mile is a liar. And I think that <laughs> speaks to inertia, right? Whether it's exercise or a diet or music lessons or any any skill or life change that you're looking to make, the beginning is always going to have the, the steepest slope. And as I was looking through your resilience workbook, I was thinking there are times in my life when I could just check all 10 of those and say, I'm doing these, it's easy, This, you know, I, I'm on a roll. And then there's other times when I feel glued to the couch and I, I can't even muster the motivation to, you know, get out and, and run a mile. It's almost like I would need a, a ramp up to even begin building uh, resilience in the first place. 
What advice do you have for, you know, a listener, anybody who finds themselves in that latter state in order to start building that, that, um, that energy against the, the inertia of, of sitting still? Yeah, well, I think I would. I think a lot of people are in that state right now, right? It's been a tough year, and a lot of people are feeling burnout, whatever that means to them on a lot of different levels. And the first thing I would say is that's okay. It's okay if you're stuck on the couch. It's okay if you have a period of time where you don't make it to the gym, you don't do the things, you don't call your friends back, you don't do the things that you you wanted to do or normally would do. I think we all have periods of time where it's challenging, um, where we don't have that motivation, where we're dealing with other things. Maybe we're just integrating some of the stuff that we learned from the previous, you know, bout of work that we were doing. And so I, I think that's okay. I don't think that growth is linear. It's not linear for companies. It's not linear for individuals. Um, and I think the idea that we're going to be on this, this hockey, sh- hockey stick shaped graph, like this rocket ship that's going straight up is a fallacy. No one's life looks like that. Right. And even if your life has looked like that for the first 22 years of your life or 30 years or whatever, it, it won't look like that forever. Um, and so I think there are periods of time where a little bit of grace and a little bit of self-compassion actually go a long way. And it's the best thing. Not doing anything is the best thing that you can do in those moments. Now, having said that, I do agree. Or, and, I, and I think many people would recognize that coming up with the answer, coming up with the direction, coming up with things to do as a consultant, figuring out you know the recommendations for your client, that's not the hard part. The hard part is getting people to change. The hard part is getting people to do something differently. And so as a consultant, you spend a lot of time thinking about how will I get people to adapt, adopt this, how will I change the culture, all those sorts of things. I think the same thing is true for us as we look at ourselves and think about how do I become the person that I want to be or change something in my life. And so I've started to invest a lot more in, in my understanding of, of habit change um, and, and trying to understand how does behavior form and how do you change it. And I would actually encourage anyone who's serious about changing and growing to do the same. And so I'll plug one resource. I really like Atomic Habits by James Clear. I think it's a, a fantastic book. Um, a lot of really good stuff in there. There's a lot of different ways to think about it. BJ Fogg is a great book. Like there's a lot of people that have, have said a lot about this topic. I would say just at some point in it, I would recommend that most people spend a little bit of time getting smarter about this and understanding how do habits happen. Because then it becomes much clearer that there's things that you can do in the process to, to sort of trick yourself or give yourself um, a better chance of succeeding, right? And so thinking about like bringing someone else along for the ride, get a partner. If you want to go to the gym, have an accountability partner who helps you go or you walk with every morning or whatever it is, right? Um, If you don't want to eat sweets, then don't have them in your house, right? And make them less obvious in your life. There's so many things you can do where you can start to trick yourself. So you're not relying on will, you're not relying on willpower anymore. You're actually you know, using your intelligence and using your motivation to change your environment, to change the processes, the loops that you you have in your life. And that tends to be much better for habit change um, and habit formation over the long term. And I think all of that applies to resilience and the practices that I talk about building that just happen to lead to greater resilience and greater well-being down the road. It's funny when people are looking for change, when someone gets to the point that they might hire an executive coach or seek out help or go to the even the self-help section of a bookstore, what they want is their surroundings to change or they want they want a situation to change. And often the answer is that they need to change what they're doing. I would imagine that in the you know, in the capacity of an executive coach, you you encounter a situation where you give somebody advice and they go, no, I, I do this this way on purpose because that's the way I do things. I don't want to change. I want everything else to change. If if that is indeed something that you come across, how do yeah. you help people to to see the, the paradox there? Yeah, I mean, I don't even need to look at clients. I do it. And you may do it as well, Greg, where, you know, you, you, you know that if, if you want to 
have a certain outcome, something needs to change. But you kind of don't want it to change, right? Like, I kind of like eating food that's comfort food, right? Is it good for me? No. Do I feel great after I eat it? No. Do I like cooking? Yeah, I do. I actually really enjoy it. But is it healthy for me? No. And so I have to ask myself, like, do I want to change the things that I, I cook? Do I want to change my lifestyle, my habits, my behaviors? Do I want to change how many hours I work, how much time I spend with or without my family? Like those types of things, right? And I think there's always some low-hanging fruit. There's some things that you can change in your life that are are pretty easy, right? Like you can take your cell phone out of your bedroom and like, is your life materially changed? We well, don't give up a whole lot, but certainly, you know, you get you can get better sleep, you can be less distracted, less stressed out, all those things. But you also get to a point, though, where there's some habits or some changes that that are more costly, right? And I think that's where you get into your values and what your aspirations are. What kind of person are you trying to be? And, you know, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to do? And so I think it's normal to get to that place where you realize I've got some inertia. I've got some things that maybe were part of my old identity. But now I have to ask myself, how much do I care? And if I care a lot, how am I going to get help? How am I going to put processes in place? How am I going to outsmart myself so that I can make those changes over time, whether that's changing your environment, changing the people who are around you, all those sorts of things. Um, but I think that's I think that's normal. I think everyone deals with that. And you know, at some point, things things do get a little bit uncomfortable. I think if you're not uncomfortable in some moments, then you know you're you're probably coasting. And there's times for that, and there's times when maybe that's not what you want to be doing. I might be crazy, but it seems like. The world makes it increasingly difficult right now to engage in that sort of thinking. I'm, I'm thinking of the way that much of our lives is managed by the Internet of Things or by apps and notifications. And the the idea of a short-term dopamine hit is very much monetized. And much of our behavior, whether we like it or admit it or not, is driven by an economy of attention that's driven towards a lot of that, that short-term reward system that almost precludes that sort of long-term habit change that that you're going towards. What advice do you have for somebody that recognizes that conundrum, but doesn't quite know how to get out of it because it seems omnipresent? Yeah. I think, I think this is hard. I think that technology is designed to be addictive. It's designed to take advantage of, of the way that we work as human beings. And I think that the people who are working on are some of the smartest people out there in the world, right? And so I think it's really good at what it's designed to do. And I think that is legitimately challenging. I don't want to be someone who says you shouldn't be using technology. You shouldn't be on social media. You shouldn't be doing those things. I think for some people, it's amazing. I think there's some awesome things that come out of being on Facebook, reconnecting with people, getting help, supporting each other, et cetera. But I think there are some aspects of it that aren't helpful. And I think to your previous question, we all have some beliefs that maybe aren't true. So, you know, at some point I turn notifications off on my phone. Do I miss things? Am I less timely sometimes? I am. Am I able to sit down and do deeper thinking and deeper work? I am able to do that as well. And I think that what I've given up, right, which is being instantly reachable um, and sometimes being in the know on something is well worth it when I think about the fact that now I get to have periods of time where I'm less distracted. So I think there's things that we can all do within our own comfort zone to try to, to put a box around the technology, try to limit the influence that it has. Like my, I don't sleep with my phone in my bedroom. Again, like I found that I would get up and the first thing I would do is I would check my phone and I'd have an email that made me stressed out. And then I, I maybe, maybe I would go and respond to it instead of going and having my workout. And like my day just spiraled out of control. So now like what's important to me is I can get up and I can go to the gym and I can meditate and then, you know, have breakfast and then start my day. And so I know that the first couple hours of my day like are, are going to look and feel a certain way. That's made a big difference in my life. Is that the right answer for everyone else? I don't think so. 
But I, I, I think being willing to, to tackle some of those things and being willing to experiment with them and just ask yourself, what's the worst that happens? What's the worst that happens if I miss a text message? What's the worst that happens if, you know, I don't respond to that email right away? Like, maybe you're okay with the answer, maybe you're not. But I think it's worth pursuing that because what you're saying is totally true. The technology is is having a huge impact on our lives. And I think we should at least be going into it with our eyes open and saying, I accept that trade-off. I accept, you know what's happening with with my dopamine levels and my addiction levels and the habits that are forming in my brain. Um, let's, let's all at least voluntarily sign up for that. It's almost like it's the same advice that you had for not having sweets in the house is it's very clear when I eat sweets, my fitness goes down. I think it's sometimes less clear that when I don't check my phone as much, I gain all this, this space. And it seems like the meta advice there is almost examine the choices and the things that you take for granted and then recognize the opportunities that that you have to create the life that you want even if that does create some friction along the way do, do you agree with that that sort of takeaway yeah i'd agree with that i would say put it to the test right so if you're not sure if it'll have the kind of benefit that you want then go try it right and, and i'd tell you the same thing if you ask me what's the optimal diet now i'm not a nutritionist i'm not a dietitian um but there's like a fierce debate on there about out in the world about Mediterranean versus keto versus paleo versus you know whole food plant based. I could tell you what some of the science says on average works for people, but I would say for you specifically, Greg, I don't know. Go try it. Go figure out. Go go do these things. Give it an honest shot and see how you feel afterward. Right. And if you don't believe just how you feel, then go to the doctor and have them draw your blood levels and compare some things that you think matter. Right. And so I think we we can take a little more accountability and go and try those things. And I've done that. And I think where I've ended up on a food standpoint is, you know, consistent with what some people think and other people would say it's not the right way to live your life. And it doesn't really matter. Right. At the end of the day, I have to get up and I got to live in this body. And so I, I want to feel a certain way. Um, and it's taken me some experimentation to get to a place where I am. And so I think that that path will look different for each person, but I think you still got to find your own path. On a related note, there's one seeming contradiction I've noticed in my life in an effort to build strength and resilience that uh, hopefully I can I can dive into a little bit with you. And and it's the idea that, you know, one of the exercises that you recommend to build resilience is is to be able to turn the volume down um, some version of, of mindfulness or meditation. And for me, meditation has been a big part of my life for about seven years. And I've noticed a an almost contradiction between in most of my life, there's there's a very future-focused energy. There's a drive to do things now that are investing in the future, and there's always sort of a carrot at the end of the stick. And then I sit on the cushion, and the, the goal in the practice is one of finding equanimity and being okay and accepting the moment and realizing that Right. Happiness is is a choice right now in the moment and, and nothing else, uh, you know, can can deliver happiness in that same way. And then I get off the cushion and I'm I'm goal oriented. And so I guess my question is, is that a contradiction or are they two different modes of searching for that that sense of attainment or transformational change just through through different avenues? That's such a great question. And I think I think where my where my mind goes is that there's different abilities and we want to be able to use them in the right moment. So I think there is something to be said for being able to be in the moment. I think mindfulness is an incredibly valuable skill, right? It allows us to be less reactive to things. It allows us to be more grounded, better listeners, better improv artists, like you name it, right? Mindfulness is a really important skill. 
There's also times, though, where it's valuable to be planful. We want to be able to look out into the future. I, you know, you want to be able to be goal-oriented and make choices and, and, and have a direction, and so you want to be able to live in the future. There's also a time to go back into the past, right? So I, I sometimes want to go back in the past, and maybe I want to savor something. Maybe I had a wonderful moment with my family, and I want to enhance that. I want to remember that feeling in great detail because it makes me feel more connected to them or it makes me feel happy or supported or whatever. I think... The challenge is when we get out of balance. The challenge is when we spend too much time in one of those states or we haven't built the ability to consistently be in in uh, switching between them or in one of them when we should be in one of them, right? Or it would be more helpful to be in it. And so if I spend too much time in the past, I'm ruminating or it prevents me from moving forward, right? And that can be really problematic. If I'm only thinking about the present moment, then, then I'm not being planful, right? Or I'm not thinking about where I want to go. And that can be problematic, certainly at work and in some other contexts. And if I'm only in the future, then I'm not enjoying what I have or I'm not grounded or, or you name it, right? And so you can kind of see the dysfunction if you spend too much time or the wrong time um, in, in each of these different spaces. And so I think what's great about your practice from the way you're describing it is I think you're building different skills, right? In business school, you're thinking about planning out into the future. In your personal practice, you're thinking about how to stay grounded. Maybe in your personal life, you think about savoring things and going back into the past, right? Those are all really useful skills to have. Just be mindful about in a moment, you know, where would be most helpful for me to be? And if you find yourself struggling, so if I struggle to get out of the past, then I might think, what are some things that I can go and do to help bring me back to the center, to bring me back to this present moment, or to be looking out into the future as opposed to looking behind me. We mentioned at the top of the show that you actually have your own podcast, uh, 100 Inspiring Voices. Can you share with our listeners the format of that podcast and why you decided to um, why you decided to start that endeavor? Yeah. So the idea of the show is, is really just to speak with 100 people who, who genuinely inspire me. Now, a lot of these people, what they have in common is they tend to be people who faced serious adversity in their life. And so we talk about how did you get through that adversity? You know, what was that like? And then we talk about how did that, how did you grow and change from it, right? So how did that change your life? How did that change the way that you live your life, the aspirations, the hopes that you have? And I find those conversations to be incredibly uplifting. I find that it's interesting. There's kind of a paradox in that sometimes you go back into really difficult moments in someone's life. So someone who was, you know, wounded serving in Afghanistan, someone who survived the Holocaust, someone who's been really sick in life, someone who was abused, someone who was bullied, you name it. In one sense, it's challenging to go back and listen to those. I think the curious person in me is always fascinated to hear what are other people's experiences like. And I think it also gives me some humility. It's like a really helpful dose of, of gratitude to, to say, you know what, I'm really lucky that I haven't had to grapple with these things. But what I think is really uplifting and inspiring is then hearing how people take those experiences and use them at some point in their own way to go and do some good, to change their life for the better. I love that story. And I think that's a story that we don't talk about enough. And that was part of the reason that I wanted to start the show is because I think, you know, if you're looking for that type of uplifting news, it's drowned in a world of sensational headlines, negativity, polarization, you name it, right? And these are pretty universal stories that um, I think a lot of people can relate to. And so, you know, the, the show is about speaking with those folks primarily, but it's also talking to people who've reinvented them their lives. So I, I love talking to people who've said, you know what, like, I've got this successful corporate career, but now I'm going to go start a school because I just really like teaching people or I want a better life for my kids. Um, and then also talking to the experts or so talking to scientists about how do our brains work and where do we get tripped up and what can we do to live better lives? And so that's kind of the format of the show. Um, and I set the goal of doing a hundred of them because uh, I was a sprinter when I was an athlete. And um, as a consultant, like you're always working on something new every few months. And so for me, like there's a personal challenge to say, I'm going to show up for a hundred weeks and I'm going to talk to someone 
different. And that's, that's, you know, for those of you who are doing the math at home, that's two years of your life. And so I'm going to spend two years of my life really going deep, becoming more empathetic, understanding these stories and trusting that in the process of it, I think a lot of goodness will fall out. Well, I, I've enjoyed listening to them and, and you've had some, some really impressive high profile guests on. So I'm, I'm a little bit sad to ask, but is it really 100 and done or, or are you going to have to change the name when you get when you get close to triple digits? I think 100 is a good amount. Uh, I think <laughs> I think there's always a chance, but I, I think there's a, that it will probably wrap up at 100, but I think it could go on to take other forms, right? I think there's something about it that's really cool that really speaks to me. And so I think the idea will continue on. Um, does the world need more than 100 of those episodes? I'm, I'm not sure, um, but we'll, we'll see. I've, I've still got 70 more to do, right? So I've got a lot of time to refine my answer to that question. Well, Chris Bordoni, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for being on the Present Value Podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. I appreciate it. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. I'm your host for this episode, Greg Wool. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Potts, Tyler Ashcraft, and Gleb Margolin. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.